But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood. For Jesus is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the wall. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. It was still very early and cool in the morning, kind of dark outside, when the man opened up his garage to mow the lawn. I don't know about you, uh, this man had a riding lawnmower. I'm the kind of guy, I like to push my lawnmower. I also don't have a very big lawn. This guy had a huge lawn, a massive property, and he would wake up early in the morning when it was still dark and cool, and he would get on his riding lawnmower, and he would make his lawn perfect. It was his favorite moment of every week. He got to shut off everything else, all the outside noise. It was just him and his lawnmower. He'd even put on these noise-canceling headphones so he could just feel the hum of the motor without even having to hear it, and he would go up and down and back and forth. And with every passing line, it was like all the stress was getting taken away from him. It was, it was therapy. It was perfect. He looked forward to it every single week. For hours, he was out there going back and forth and up and down. And you can just imagine the more he mowed, the bigger his smile got, the less stress he felt, until the sun started coming up and he finished, so he went to his garage to put his beautiful, lovely lawnmower back away. He stepped off the lawnmower and he was getting ready to push it in the garage when all of a sudden, BAM! A man tackled him to the ground. Out of nowhere, a man had snuck across the lawn, saw him get off his lawnmower, lowered his shoulder and ran as fast as he could and tackled him to the ground. Hit him right in the ribcage. Because he lived on a slow property, as soon as he hit the man, they both started tumbling down the driveway and eventually into the lawn all the way down to the road when they landed in the ditch, and then they started using fists. They went back and forth and pummeled each other. Until hours later, the mowing man woke up in the hospital with six broken ribs, black eyes, wondering to himself, what in the world happened to me? I was mowing my lawn, my favorite moment of the week, and now I'm in the hospital, and I can barely breathe. Turns out that man, his name is Rand Paul. Rand Paul, he is a senator from the state of Kentucky. Do you all know who I'm talking about? Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, he's got really curly hair. He woke up in the hospital. Six broken ribs, and for months the media speculated as to why this happened. Why was he attacked, this senator? Not since 1856 had a sitting senator been so attacked. Not since 1856. And so the media went wild. Was this someone on the far liberal left wing of you know, the government party that was tackling Rand Paul because he represents the far right of the conservative party? Was this someone who was so angry about a bill that he had passed or a vote he had made that they thought violence was the only answer? For months and months, the world, the media, people like you and I, we wondered, why did this happen to Rand Paul? Months later, months later, he was filing in court with his assailant. 
And the judge asked the man, why did you do this? What was your motive behind attacking the senator? And he said, I was sick and tired of him putting his grass clippings on my lawn. The attacker was Rand Paul's neighbor, his immediate neighbor. And he was tired of the way that Rand Paul was mowing his lawn. I'm not making this up. This is true. While a great sum of people imagined that Paul's political persuasion was to blame for the attack, while the media continued to stir the pot as much as possible, it was all just a neighborhood squabble. But one that resulted with a man in a hospital with six broken ribs. Remember that at one time you were without Jesus. You were aliens in the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant. You had no hope. And you were without God. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood. He is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and he has broken down the wall. The wall that is the hostility between us. I know most of you pretty well, and you are all perfect. Saints among us. I know that you've never been angry at a neighbor before. You've never been frustrated about the noise you hear going late into the evening. You've never been frustrated about them parking their car in front of your driveway. You've never been frustrated about where they put their lawn clippings after they're done mowing the lawn. Robert Frost once famously wrote that good fences make good neighbors. And one can make the argument that straw walls do make for better peace. There's a reason the Vatican is surrounded by walls. There's a reason the White House has barbed wire fences. There's a reason that the temple during the time of Jesus and even today has a wall. Every child that has ever had to share a room knows the value of a wall, though not a real one. Your stuff stays on your side. My stuff stays on my side. There's a reason we have to go through security before we get on an airplane or we get on a train. But good walls, good walls also make for bad neighbors. You know, during the initial hearing after the lawnmower battle, it came to light that Rand Paul and his neighbor had not exchanged a word in over 10 years. 10 years of frustration and resentment boiling to the surface about lawn clippings. Ten years of a wall of hostility resulted in a man going to the hospital. That's a pretty tremendous wall to share with the person you live next to. That hostility is stronger than any chain or concrete or wood fence. The higher we build the walls around us, both the real and the imagined, the higher the hostility tends to be. Every year, more and more gated communities are completed. Every year, new boundary lines are drawn for schools, for taxable businesses to keep some people in and some people out. Year after year, we spend far more time with people who look like us and think like us and talk like us than we ever have before. And then St. Paul shows up, and he says that Christ has already broken down the wall, that Christ has eradicated the hostility between us. But one not, need not drive around very long or turn on the television or foot on your phone to know that hostility is still very real. With every day we hear about new walls, both real and imagined, that are being constructed to keep some people in and some people out. 
But in the blood of Christ, Jesus' peace has been made possible for us. And this is where the struggle of building walls and erasing hostility really comes into focus. Because it's far too easy to read a passage like this one, to read from Ephesians, and then say, this means we cannot build a wall with Mexico. Or we read a passage like this and we say, we cannot put up walls in our communities. We cannot separate our children. And for as much as that might be true, those walls, those hostilities, those visions of peace, they're defined on our terms. And not on Jesus's. Because when we think of peace, we might imagine a time where people just get along where friends and neighbors and families will finally just be nice to each other. But Jesus, the Lord of Lords, he doesn't have a lot to say about being nice. Sure, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, minister to the sick, all of those are nice things. And doing all of those might make the world a little more peaceful, but Jesus' peace, a divine peace, looks a lot more like turning the tables over in the temple. It looks like calling to task the political and religious elite for making a mockery of God's kingdom. It looks like abandoning the people closest to you if it means that God's kingdom will become real. Sometimes Jesus' peace doesn't jive with our version of peace. One of the greatest challenges of being a Christian today is that many of us simply cannot resonate with the deep and profound truth that at one time we were far off and Jesus has brought us near. If we've grown up in the church or can't remember a time when the church was not pivotal in our life, we make the false assumption that we have always been near. But we're Gentiles. All of us were once far off from the Lord and were only brought close because of Jesus. And when it's when we realize how far off we are, when we recognize the chasm that has been joined in the blood, that the peace of Jesus becomes a whole lot more interesting. Jesus' peace is not the same thing as our peace. Jesus' peace is greater than any earthly vision we could possibly imagine. It is more powerful than any political party. It is mightier than any magistrate's order. It is more life-giving than any piece of legislation. Jesus' peace? It's revolutionary. I, my family comes from Germany. My family comes from Germany. My father was born in Germany in the early 60s, and he only immigrated to the United States for high school. He met my mother uh, after he graduated from high school. He started their family here. Uh, so half of my family came over from Germany. I grew up in a home where I was used to hearing German. German traditions, German expressions, German songs. I know half of our prayers in German. I know a lot of our hymns in German. I can speak German. I took it in high school and in college. It's part of who I am. Uh, when I was in high school... Learning German, we had a teacher, her name was Frau Carney. Frau means Mrs. in German. And we just called her the Frau. <laughs> the Frau. The Mrs. Because that's the kind of you know, air that she carried. The Frau. And every year in her German class, she would have a unit on the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall. Now, the Berlin Wall came down when I was very, very young. I don't have a memory of it existing. I don't even have a memory of it coming down. I was far too young. But some of you, in fact, a lot of you probably remember the Berlin Wall. Built in the city of Berlin, dividing the East and the West, the Soviet bloc from the rest of the world, after World War II. Uh, Frau Carty, the Frau, had lived in Berlin. 
She was there when the wall went up. Some of her family were on one side, some of her family were on the other. Some of her friends were on one side, and some of her friends were on the other. And the way she used to describe it was, at first, it just pained her and grieved her to know the people she loved were on the other side. But with every passing year, she stopped loving them, and she started resenting them. Because the way the world talked about the wall, the way the media at the time talked about the wall, if you were on one side, you were right, and if you were on the other side, you were wrong. But if you were on one side, you were good, and if you were on the other side, you were evil. And every year, she would tell us about the day the wall came down, and she would burst into tears. Even with all those years that had passed, she never stopped crying. Because she said she never believed the wall would ever come down, that she would never see that day in her life. And what made it even worse is that when the wall came down and she went into East Berlin for the first time, it looked just like West Berlin did. She had so construed in her mind that the people on the other side were wrong or bad or broken that she thought going there meant that she was going to fix everything when in fact the people had not changed. The wall that was there was in itself a wall. It divided people who were exactly the same. And decades later, she was still ashamed how much she hated and resented her family and friends on the other side simply because concrete was put between them. We put up walls all the time. We put up walls in our backyard with our neighbors. We put up these invisible walls in our community saying these kids get to go to this school and these kids have to go to this school. We do it all the time. And so, of course, there's a temptation for us to think about Christ destroying the walls, and we have to ask ourselves, does this mean that I have to ask all of you to go home and get your sledgehammers and go take down the wall that you have in your backyard? Or there's a temptation for someone like me to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to rent a bus, and we're all going to go down to the border with Mexico, and we're going to make sure they never put a wall up. Or... There's a temptation for us to say, you know what, in Woodbridge, we're going to have open boundaries. Everyone can go anywhere at any time. But destroying walls and building walls, neither of those things create peace. We still live in a world that is very broken. Very broken by our sinful desires that compel us to make choices and decisions we know we shouldn't make. Peace. Jesus' peace it does not come by building a wall. It does not come by tearing down a wall. It comes by destroying the hostility behind the walls. And that's not something we can do on our own. And so rather than building walls to keep us safe, or destroying walls to keep us safe, rather than trying to become our own gods and discern what's best for us, Paul, in Ephesians, pushes us in a different direction. He says, don't build walls, don't take down walls, but let yourselves be built upon the cornerstone of Christ. Let yourselves be the bricks built on Jesus and the temple will be worn. And that's no easy task. To do so requires a humility all but lost in the world today. It requires a willingness to say that I cannot do this thing on my own that I have routinely failed to love my fellow brothers and sisters, that I have ignored the power of Jesus. To be built on the cornerstone of Christ 
rather than building our own walls, rather than destroying our own walls, is to fundamentally commit ourselves to Jesus instead of trying to commit Jesus to whatever we want. Letting ourselves be built upon Jesus is nothing short of the words we say every week. Let thy will be done. When each of you entered today, I hope that you got a Lego piece. A Lego piece. These Legos are my own. From when I was a child, I had to steal them from my parents' house. You can see at the 8.30 service, they all used the red and yellow bricks. I think I tried to make a McDonald's when I was 12 years old, which is why I had all these. I would like each of you to apply your piece. Some of you probably have large pieces, some of you have small pieces. Randy already asked if he could take some home. I want you to take your Legos out for a second. There is a real temptation for us today to think of ourselves purely in individual terms. I am my own master. I only care about myself and making sure I have what I need. It's all about my relationship with God, my personal relationship with God, and other people don't really matter. And we're living that life worse than we ever have before. We don't know the names of our neighbors. We don't even know the names of everybody in church on Sunday, because it's all about me, me, me. But the thing about the church is, you cannot just be me in the church. All of our pieces are part of Jesus' peace. We are all stuck with each other. It's like a Lego thing that gets built that you can't take apart. It's Legos with superglue. That's what the church is. It's where your pieces come together on one piece. If you've ever built a Lego before, which some of you probably have, some of you haven't, the most important part of a Lego creation is the very first piece. You can mess up down the road when you're 50 pages into whatever you're making, and you can make some changes, but if you mess up the first piece, the whole thing won't work. Jesus is our first piece. He is, as Paul says, the cornerstone upon which we are built. So in just a moment, Gloria is going to play for us some music. And while she does, I want each of you to come forward with your piece and add it on the foundation of Jesus. And in so doing, we will recognize that it's not just about me, not just about what I want, not just about my personal relationship with Jesus, but it's in recognition that Christ is our cornerstone. He is the solid rock upon which we stand. And when we do so, when we hold our individual peace that is part of Jesus' peace, we will remember that we are not alone. We will be built upon the cornerstone that is Jesus. We will see how connected and stuck with each other we really are. And then, and only then, will we remember that Christ has already destroyed all the walls between us and that all of the hostility is gone. So won't you come? I didn't say it would be pretty. <laughs> I didn't say it would be perfect. But neither are we. Neither are we. Friends, we don't have to wait 39 years before we talk with someone that we've become estranged with. We don't need to wait for somebody to die before we are reconciled with our brothers and our sisters and our friends. Somebody already did. For you and for me. So that all of this hostility we feel, we might remember that it doesn't need to exist. 
that every wall we've constructed in our minds or with our hands, they don't need to be there. His death is the death that makes possible our reconciliation now. So I know that you all are perfect people and that you don't hate your neighbors. But all of us have something we're struggling with. A friend, a coworker, a spouse perhaps, maybe even somebody who's sitting next to you in the pews. Don't let the wall remain. Don't wait for somebody to die. Jesus already did. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.